0: at paypal.me forward slash hpopod the link to both of those can also be found in the show notes finally please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform now on to the next topic
1: that is hardcore man <laughs> the speed golf background i'm so honored that's right
2: yeah, i try to do a, i try to do a specialized background for for the guests, and so I'm glad we got to we got to, we we delayed a little bit this morning. That was perfect because I got to throw down a couple of ribeyes and some shrimp and, and a little Greek yogurt for for my breakfast. It's going to fuel me for a workout later today. But uh, hold
1: you know, on, ribeyes, ribeye, just, was, rib-eye was, shrimp, was, and
2: Greek yogurt, huh? I was to to get that in. I was just eating as fast as I could because I thought we we're going to be like going, and I was wasn't sure if we were going to make it in time.
0: You know, you, you reminded me of something, Sean, when you said, mentioned the Greek yogurt. I think one, yeah. of the, one of our listeners sent an email to the show email account and was, they, I guess you had mentioned something about eating yogurt like a few episodes ago. And okay. were asking why you introduced yogurt or if there was any reason behind that.
2: Uh, I like the way it tastes.
0: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Sometimes it's as simple as that.
2: It is. You know, it's, it's kind of funny. Well, I, you know, what, I, what I, here I'll tell you, I'm celebrating um, the fact that I just finished my last night was my last rep of, you know, I had 300 pushups a day for 100 days. So I did 30,000 pushups in 100 days. I'm glad to be done. <laughs> I'm going to keep going 100 a day for maybe a year just for fun. But that was uh, that was a fun challenge to be glad I was at 10 o'clock at night because I remember I was doing damn things. Parking lots, gas stations, you know, airports, just wherever I could get them in. You know, just trying to trying to get them done. Throughout the morning. Towards the end, I got lazy and I wouldn't. I used to, have to get them up in the morning and start knocking them out first thing, and then uh, I got to where it was just like I'm just. I was like, sometimes I'd start at eight o'clock at night, and I was like, okay, now I got to do three hundred push-ups, and I'm tired.
0: Was, was, was there a point in time, because I remember you said in the beginning, it was like you're just basically always sore. Yeah, that, that went away
2: after about, uh, the continuously being sore went away after, I'd say about a month and a half, and that's five, six weeks into it, I was like, okay, I'm not really that sore anymore, but I was kind of a little tired. I mean, I think at the most of the benefit came within the first month or so, quite honestly, and beyond that, I don't know that there was much more benefit, benefit other than the discipline, you know, and that's, I think sometimes that can be a benefit itself. Anyway, let's talk about Brad. Brad, yeah. welcome. Thanks for coming on. Uh, you've got an interesting story. You got some interesting you know, like I said, this background of speed golf, which is just interesting to talk about. But I know I guess you would spend you I know you and Mark Sisson had teamed up and done some work together. Uh I was I, I was hang, I was kind of doing a video with Mark a couple of weeks ago up in LA. He was in town and we were talking, and Mark is now sort of drifting more towards eating more meat and less vegetables, which is also uh kind of a common trend but brad tell us a little bit about who you are and then let's start chatting about whatever
1: oh you cut out there sorry what did you ask
2: oh it was nothing important no did you (laughs) you? i was just saying brad just give us a little bit about your background and then we can we can get going
1: oh my gosh you're 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 winding me up watch out man i mean with that with that speed golf background our our visual when we're connecting here on video um, you're already getting me fired up. I'm, I'm so honored to have a custom background for the, uh, for the uh-huh. Outlier podcast. And I think, uh, yes. Let Steve me, golf. let me,
2: let me ask you a question. Is that, is that what it really looks like? I mean, do you guys just line up on a line and just start running like that? Is that, is that, or is that kind of a uh, you know, over dramatic dra- dramatics?
1: Yeah. That's it. one of those uh, goofy, goofy prints you put on the wall at work, you know, about commitment means going forward over the ocean Okay. Speed right. golf, if you're not familiar, um, it's kind of an outlier sport, man. It's, it's the, the, the tournament golf format where you go and you keep score and you try to shoot a good score, but they also time you uh, across the course. So you do start in a time trial format. So you play individually and every five minutes, another player goes and another player goes. And so you're playing the course as fast as you can and you're keeping score and you add your minutes and your strokes together. So, you can't just run around and like hockey puck the ball into the hole and, you know, get, get 10 strokes. You have to shoot pars and hit great shots and hit it straight and keep it, uh, you know, in line with the hole because your, your time is counting the whole time. So, really, what happens is uh, the best players are shooting near par because it takes less time to hit the ball in the green and put it in the hole than it does to hit crappy shots. So, it's a beautiful sport, just like a Winter Olympics biathlon where the cross country skiers ski a lap. And then they shoot at the target and then they ski another lap. And um, some viewers might not know that if those guys miss one of their shots, they have to ski a penalty lap of 200 meters. So they really have to calm down and execute the, the gun portion of the, of the competition. So speed golf is very similar to that where we're, we're blending. It's a beautiful zen-like experience because you have to be in the moment. You're not in the deliberate mindset like a golfer. And that's the great part of the sport is you're just kind of letting your natural athletic ability come out you run up to the ball, you look at the target, you swing, you hit it, and you keep running. And what a lot of people find when they're playing is they shoot a score that's as good or even better than when they're playing deliberate golf, or we like to call it slow golf. And it's because you're in that intuitive mindset where you're not letting it, the, uh, the, 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 the stress and the tension of over deliberating, you know, get into the mix, you just hit. And if you hit a bad shot, you better forget about it because you're starting to run off to the next ball. And so it's, it's a real frenzied kind of sport, but you also have to have that calmness and that, that mindfulness to hit good shots, even when you're uh, running at a hectic pace.
2: Now, were you a golfer, like a regular golfer before this, or was this something you started out and started out as a runner and then switching to golfer? How did, how did that sort of evolve? And I just kind of wonder I mean, you can't do this on a regular golf course. I mean, if you're running, I mean, I don't know, maybe you can't. I mean, you can't just run through people, I suppose. So they got to have special courses, I assume, or special times. Or... So how did you get into this thing?
1: Yeah, man, it's you're, um, you're, you're very astute with your observations, one of them being that it doesn't really mix well with regular golf. So you have to be the very first guy off in the morning or the last guy uh, right before dark. And I usually go right before dark. I'll show up there. And play a quick nine holes in 30 minutes, and then I'm back home for dinner. So it's a really convenient sport if you want to play a lot of golf and you don't have time, like most people. I'm out there playing several days a week, and it, it takes no time because I can cover half the course in a half hour or the entire course in a tournament setting. Uh, we're playing the course in 45, 48, 50 minutes for the entire 18 holes. So uh, imagining golfers on the course, it ain't going to happen to <laughs> bother you know, several different groups. So basically, you have to have an empty course. And uh, first thing in the morning is really nice, too, because you can go out there, play a round of golf and come home and make your breakfast smoothie or your uh, yogurt shrimp and uh, a ribeye if you're Dr. Sean. And uh, so that's the individual part. And to answer your other question, uh, this sport was made for me because I'm a lifelong golfer. My family's sport is golf. My father, uh, he passed uh, two months ago. He had a great life of 97 years, and he was one of the greatest golfers, probably the best golfer in the world over age 90 for several years. Where he was shot, he twice shot 16 strokes under his age, which is the big standard for uh, senior golfers. So he shot a 71 at the age of uh, 86, 87 years old, and he shot a 76 on a championship course at the age of 92. So he played very (laughs) strong. 90s and it's been part of my life for so long but of course back when I was a youth I got into long distance running in high school and uh, Zach knows how tough that is with the injuries and the burnout and the overtraining so then I transitioned into triathlon but I was an endurance athlete since I was a teenager so uh, then when I heard about this sport way back when I mean it's kind of a grassroots sport but uh, it was you know I was captivated right away I went out and played my first round and discovered that even sprinting through the course, I was playing just as good and making pars and bogeys just like I did when I, when I took forever. So uh, it, was, it was a great awakening to a new experience. And you know, then you get a fitness benefit too, instead of just going out there and eating pretzels and uh, drinking beer, uh, you're, you're doing something that's a real challenge and it has, I feel like, a growth experience to me because uh, you, you can't get down on yourself, you can't get overly tense, you can't get uh, over analytical, and you really have to be in that that flow like state that we strive so hard to get to in any sport, really.
0: Hey Brad, I think uh, last time I saw you, we were recording a podcast with Don Freeman on Trail Runner Nation, and the one thing I remember about that is you can you came into his office and uh, you you like you jumped up onto like this little ledge that was probably about three feet or so off the ground. So like, I mean, that's pretty. Cool. Athletic achievement. Just be able to do that at any age, at any point in your life. But, um, like you're clearly in good shape. Is that the type of stuff you do to prepare for like speed golf? Is there a lot of like plyometric type stuff or jumping? Cause I know you've gotten into high jumping and stuff as well, which we can talk about if you want.
1: Yeah, thanks, Zach. You know, this has been a, a crazy journey for me dating back to endurance athlete scene, and I got deep into that. Uh, after my disastrous college running career, I became a triathlete, and I did good at the amateur level, and then uh, I was, you know, highly incentivized to avoid career life. I worked as a, an accountant Uh, for the world's largest accounting firm for 11 weeks after I graduated college. And I hated it so much. I said, you know what, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to be a pro triathlete, which was like an oxymoron back then because there wasn't a lot of money in the sport. It was this brand new sport. But I just went for it and I plunged into that world with everything I had. And it ended up going really well. I was on the pro circuit for nine years. Uh, At my best, I was a national champion. I was ranked third in the world. And I had a lot of great great success and a lot of struggles and failures where I had to learn about turning off that competitive intensity and moderating that type A behavior and training and being patient and being uh, you know more of a complete person rather than just a macho competitor who could pass anybody on the bike trail any day they wanted you know so it was it was really great to kind of form myself as a person as a young man in this competitive environment that was you know, there's there's nothing more intense and dramatic than the competitive arena, as far as you know, learning the lessons of success and failure in life. So, you know, I reference that athletic experience uh, for the rest of my life and everything I do as a parent and in, in in my work. Um, you know, you got to be honest with yourself. You got to be honest with others. You present yourself. You compete, and then win or lose, you go home and you try to become a better person and be a good sport and congratulate others and all that great stuff that plays out into. Everything we're doing. So uh, that's my background. But you know, the endurance scene—it's a really dangerous sport. I know. I know rugby's dangerous, mind you, and and playing professional football's dangerous. But the, the breakdown, burnout, illness, and injury—that has become epidemic and is still epidemic decades later—is really you know something that I've spent my uh, my career life trying to promote a different approach and a more evolved approach to endurance training because. I fried my body and I was pushing myself to the very edge, that very limit red line all the time because I wanted to get, you know, 30 seconds faster on the Olympic distance course to go from 146, to 146 flat because that meant a win instead of a fourth place. And a win is 10 times more income than fourth place in a small sport like triathlon. So you're always just trying to get that last bit, that last morsel of energy out of your body And that, in many cases, conflicts with your health. And so, finally, we're awakening to this. We're seeing our endurance uh, brethren, the guys that I grew up and trained with and raced with, their hearts are falling apart at age 40, age 50. And so, you know, I had to have this awakening uh, after I retired that I wanted to be a fit guy, but I had to broaden my perspective of fitness. And so it took, it took a few years. You know, I, I retired from racing, and then I went and did the crazy 50-mile. I did the AR-50 one year. Oh, boy, it wasn't that fun, eight hours of running. And I, I crossed that finish line. And, you know, when uh, every athlete asks themselves, what am I doing this for? Like, Sean, you're saying, what are you doing your push-ups every single day for? You're sore. It's late at night. You didn't count all the way. And sometimes, you know, you, you're glad you did it after for the 50 mile run, I was like, what am I doing here? Why did I do this? And I never got the answer. That was 24 years ago. So that was kind of like my exit from the endurance scene was really the conclusion. Like I've been there, I've done that. It was a great experience. I mostly enjoyed the competition. I wasn't one of those guys that just wanted to be out there all day because I enjoy nature. You know, a two hour run was great for me, but a six hour run was like, I'm doing it for another reason besides enjoying the birds chirping. And so uh, that's when I had this awakening, like, you know, what does fitness really mean? And how am I now going to promote things like longevity and healthy, balanced life rather than going and dropping the hammer and kicking butt at another triathlon because that that door is closed and now I got to figure out something else. So luckily, the opportunity that presented itself was to uh, dominate little kids in huge sports. So when my son was uh, uh, starting in first grade at five, I was a participatory coach for soccer, basketball and track and I threw down on those poor kids and I was like the MVP (laughs) of every team for like, (laughs) what, eight years until they're like in middle school and I was still the MVP of like middle school basketball. I'd throw down on them, I'd get in the scrimmage, we'd run lines at the end and I'd be sprinting to the finish on the lines and then, you know, pretty soon what happened was high school came along and then they started dominating me so bad that like I couldn't even stay on the the court with them for pickup basketball, but you know keeping fit and wanting to be there and connect with my son and his peers uh, you know required a a new mindset where I had to get ready for soccer practice and do some side to side drills that I'd never done in my life because I was just pedaling my bike or running down the trail and so I think for for all of us, we have to match up our competitive goals ideally with our health and then that factor of longevity that now I don't know if Sack's too worried about longevity, but Sean and I are in our, our 50 plus division, right? Now you gotta think, what the heck am I doing and how is this gonna serve me over time? I have a great quote from my friend, Simon Whitfield, one of the greatest triathletes of all time, Olympic gold medalist 2000, Olympic silver medalist in 2008. And um, I asked him, you know, he's retired now. I said, hey, what are you doing for fitness? What's your, what, are your, what are your goals? What's your routine like? And he said, you know, right now, I'm coached by my 80 year old self. One liner right there, you know, you want to honor your 80 year old self right now with whatever you're doing. And if you can inform your decisions in that manner. Oh boy, that's beautiful. So I'm trying to answer this uh, long winded question, but, you know, jumping up and down on the walls. These are things that as a triathlete I never considered. So now I want to, you know, pursue the more explosive uh, workouts and sports have my workouts uh, short duration and explosive because I never worked that end of you know, the fitness component. And it feels really great to broaden things out knowing that I'm, you know, I no longer have interest in extreme endurance participation. So now I'm like a sprinter, a speed golfer. I try to get in the weight room and do something respectable. It's not like my, my, my biggest talent, but uh, the sprinting is going really well. And uh, as a side note to the speed golf competition, uh, I broke the Guinness World Record last year on this kind of offshoot event of the fastest single hole of golf ever played so they have the tournament where you play 18 holes and then this this weird freaky guinness world record that i saw by mistake on youtube one time became my obsession and my passion And i, I trained for this thing and so they actually have a, a category of one hole the fastest time and it has to be of course a par 5 a 500 yard minimum length hole so you go out there and they don't care about your strokes, but they're just starting the stopwatch and you sprint full speed like you're running the Olympic 400 meters. And then you got to get the ball in the hole. So uh, last summer, you can see this on YouTube. It says Brad Kearns, world record speed golf, fastest hole. Uh, but I had a wonderful experience that was putting all together the training and the distinct training that I did for this one day event. And I played the par five hole in a minute 38. I got a birdie. It was crazy. I was only using one club. So I hit three wood, three wood, three wood, three wood, you know, chipping and putting with the three wood. And uh, it was one of the great experiences of my life because it kind of represented, you know, maintaining this passion and this competitive intensity and going for a distinct goal, even as an old guy where, of course, I'm not getting a big check at the end. I'm not on TV. It was just a fun thing I'm doing with my friends and family. But to me, it meant the same. It had the same significance as when I was racing in the national championships and on ESPN and uh, having the, the media and the attention that you get on the professional circuits. So it was really great to recreate that. And I realized how important it is for all of us to have some charge, something that's getting us up in the morning and going every day, uh, like a competitive goal, whoever you are and whatever point you're at in life.
0: Hey, Brad, I know like, um, I know your your kind of background through fitness and nutrition pretty well i think some of our listeners probably has read some of your stuff or listened to your podcast and maybe do but i want to dive a little bit into kind of like some of the stuff you mentioned especially with the endurance burnout stuff and i think it's it because it, the reason i think this topic is interesting because i think it crosses over to other sports too because when you see these discussions about performance and these discussions about what's best to eat for specific sports or for any sport um you know, a lot of times people will point to these 20 and 30 year olds and say, "Well, look, this person's eating that, this person's doing this, or this person broke this record and they're following this diet." And they don't really, I think, always look at the whole picture, which is, first of all, like you you can eat almost anything you want when you're in your 20s and 30s and probably get away with it to, to a degree. And so they're not really looking far enough down the road perhaps as to what type of ramifications that sort of decision making is going to have and um then it's also like it's if they're, they're maybe not looking at it like you said in the as their 80 year old self like what's their longevity so for me i've always been more interested in kind of the who are the folks in the sport that i'm doing that are the oldest and still performing at a high level and what are they doing because those folks are interesting to me especially when they get up above well above an age of what is supposed to be expected for that um, so tell us a bit about kind of your pathway through nutrition, because I'm sure when you were kind of full-blown triathlon stuff, it was hard-pressed to find anyone following anything but a very high, if not very high-carbohydrate diet. Is, was that your experience throughout, and then did you kind of change after?
1: Yeah, man. We, we knew what we knew back then, and I, I feel sad about it now because um, we were eating uh, crappy foods and burning sugar all day, and then eating sugar... Uh, when we weren't training, Uh, and of course, we now know that that creates a lot of inflammation, oxidative stress, delayed recovery, more stress to the cells that you already stress with these crazy hard workouts that were too hard, so it was sort sort of a vicious cycle of the sugar-burning endurance athlete, uh, completely uh, disrespectful of, you know, uh, longevity and uh, general health, so the high-carbohydrate grain-based diet was, you know, fundamental to uh, endurance performance. And it, it still is for whatever percentage of the pack that's not listening to the right podcasts or not open minded. They're buying gels. It's a multi billion dollar business for sports drinks, gels, blocks, things like that. And I know we need those things in the course of a hard workout, but like to live in a sugar based lifestyle, that one was heartbreaking for me because. Now, now our minds are open to such, you know, an incredible more potential, uh, really with the FASTER study being a prominent uh, breakthrough so that people can really pay attention and say, this stuff really worked. It's not just freakos on the outside that are running 20 miles on amino acids and water. You know, now we're knowing physiologically that uh, everyone has that, uh, you know, potential to become a fat adapted athlete. But I think, uh, you know, in the start of your question, you also pointed out the overtraining patterns that sort of feed into this sugar burning lifestyle or the thing that we all have to sit back and recognize and say, wait a second, the the idea that you need to push yourself to exhaustion as a, as a workout pattern is still very strong. And it's, it's, you know, in the mindset of the athletes in all the sports from CrossFit, uh, I call them CrossFit freaks, much love to the CrossFit freaks, the endurance freaks. We get freaky about this stuff because these sports and these goals attract that, goal oriented, highly motivated type A population. Sean, I just learned this. Did you know uh, the origin of the term type A? Uh, I did not know the term. Tell me. The origin of the term type A is the high risk factor for heart disease in medical terminology. It's a type A for heart disease. And there's type B and there's type C. And we've repurposed that into a personality attribute and in many cases, a complementary personality attribute. Oh, yeah, I'm a type A. I, I wake up super early and I, I work out and then I go and, and do this and do that. And so, like, I don't want to be in the top heart disease risk category as a type A. So what I learned through that uh, competitive experience I referenced uh, previously was that I had to tone down my type A competitive intensity to make a breakthrough as an endurance athlete in this crazy sport that requires so much type A behavior and focus. And so, you know, sitting here, of course, I had the, uh, the luxury of a professional athlete lifestyle where I could sleep a lot and focus on my recovery and my stretching and all the things you need to do to, to lower stress levels. But Zach, that's what you're talking about is the average Joe who's participating in these sports, they have to rush off to work every morning and deal with kids and uh, stacks of bills and things that, you know, the pros are focused on their training and their recovery. So they have a different decision-making paradigm than someone who's trying to juggle everything. And, you know, I'm, I'm gesturing on the camera justice, the, uh, the, the scales of justice have the, the weights on either side. And so when we put the weight on the stress side, we're talking about every form of stress in life, including the enjoyable stuff like our workouts. Then we have the lousy boss and the difficult commute and the traffic in Seattle. And so all these things are weighing down only one side of the scales of justice and the other side, your sleep habits, your time in the park where you sit on a bench and watch the squirrels, all that stuff is, there's almost nothing over there these days because now we have the digital device in our face that's taking over for all the downtime and the recovery time that we used to have. So these are the things that are you know, a a necessary awakening for any athlete to realize that like taking a day off or slowing your heart rate down into the aerobic zone and the low part of the aerobic zone, not the maximum pegged aerobic zone every single workout, but doing these leisurely workouts that you're out there, you're putting in your time, you're working your cardiovascular system, you're building up that muscular endurance, and it doesn't have to hurt and feel like this endorphin buzz every single time you go out there and train.
2: Brett, I mean, you, uh, like I said, you're talking about uh, elite performance and, you know, you, you know, like I said, you've got this record in speed golf and people say, well, it's an obs- obscure, obscure sport, but... Nonetheless, and I've gotten world records in obscure sports as well. I've had Highland Games, World Championships. I've had Indoor Rowing, World Championships. I mean, it takes a lot of dedication, a lot of effort, a lot of focused purpose, uh, you know, work to get that done. You still have to train hard. You still have to do those things. But, you know, you've done this. And, uh, I mean, I will contend that you can be your best physically and you can be a high-level athlete and still be healthy. Now, there's a lot of people that do it the wrong way. I don't think I don't think reaching your optimum physical uh, performance potential always translates into bad health. I think we've just done it the wrong way for many years, and I think we're starting to learn some of the stuff you've talked about. So I want to I want to just kind of delve further into what do you think of the right things to do for a prescription for someone that maybe wants to be competitive, maybe wants to go out there and and you know because I mean I've been doing it my whole life, I enjoy it, you know, and I you know it's. Uh, it's it's kind of who I part of who I am. I mean, and if I stop doing that, I'll feel like I'm dead. So I mean, I I perceive myself at ninety still doing something. I don't know what it, I'm going to be the i to be the Tiddlywinks world champion. I'm not you know. I don't know. I'm just going. To, you know. So what do you think is uh, the prescription for healthy uh, physical performance and, and a high level physical performance?
1: hey man let's do like a whole podcast channel about that that's what we're talking about here every show i love what you guys are doing especially blending the you know the the different worlds of the extreme endurance and then the you know amazing records that you've set at your age sean it's it's really cool and like first first thing to do would be to listen to podcasts like yours and get that information into your brain and realize you know the free thinkers and the outliers and the you know people that are progressing with this exciting carnivore movement that i've been captivated by by several months and previously dismissed out of hand when danny vega told me he was eating this carnivore diet in 2017 i said literally whatever dude and he's like but my blood works better i'm stronger i'm this i'm that and he's he's jacked as 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 anybody. And I I dismissed it. I'm so ashamed to say like, why didn't I open my mind and listen to what this guy was saying is because it didn't align with my fixed belief systems. And so now with the internet and the podcast explosion and the free transfer of information, now I think we have a chance to evolve from, for example, the endurance scene 50 years ago, dudes were overtraining and getting injured and Bill Bowerman, the great coach at university of Oregon, quotes that my friend likes to send me to Christopher Smith in Eugene, Oregon, the greatest speed golfer of all time, old time Bowerman, Prefontaine fan. And Bowerman say stuff like, "If if you're tired, you're not allowed to come to practice. And if you show up, you're kicked off the team. And that was his paradigm back then. And it's like, if everyone could just honor that advice today, 50 years later, we'd be so much better. So I think this awakening is really important that we have to continually keep our minds open to new ideas and breakthrough performances and breakthrough strategies like the, uh, the fat adapted athletes that are setting the pace and the, the carnivore uh, dietary patterns that are now setting the pace and bringing us a first awakening. So that's my, my first on my list is, you know, open up your mind. And then uh, I think the one that's really hitting me hard today is the hyperconnectivity and the overstimulation of the mind. And I'm, I'm heartbroken for my kids' generation because I think the destruction is, is something that we, you know, uh, we've lived half our lives, Sean, Zach, you've lived a certain percentage where there was none of this, zero. And I've written now uh, the first 12 or something were before the cutoff point where I had to sit in a room and type on a screen and maybe go down to the library and check out a few books and page through them and work on this project that was totally focused and you know, combining uh, resources in a way that was very linear and measurable. And now today, man, my email screen's open. I've been working on a book for this many months, but I got other stuff to do and people are texting me and the phone's ringing and it, it's blowing our minds out to the extent that I think it's way more stressful than we acknowledge and it has a hidden cost that's tremendous, the short attention span. Some people are probably dropping off this podcast right now because they can't listen to anything for longer than 23 minutes or whatever our count is. So for me, I'm watching this in myself, my penchant for distraction and uh, hyperconnectivity and having to make these concerted efforts to do things like first thing in the morning, I drop down to the floor and I do this uh, mobility flexibility ritual with my legs where I'm doing hamstring kickouts and frogs and core work. And it takes 12 minutes. And I do it every single day without fail, just like you were talking about off, I don't know if we were recording that or not, Sean, but you're talking about you're doing 300 pushups a day for 100 straight days. Is that what it was? Yeah. So that's, what was it? 30, how many thousand? Yeah. So, yeah
2: 30,000 pushups would sort have of ended up being, uh, I to that for, for yeah, 100 straight days.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you could like, listener could dismiss that as a, a silly thing to do, or why do you do that? Oh, that's crazy, fool. Zach ran a marathon around a running track in Arizona. That's crazy. Uh, <laughs> when we put these things into the mix in our lives, I think it has a profound impact to show and to prove that you have the discipline and structure and habit-forming ability for me, for example, to drop down on the phone and do my 12-minute thing. And I don't think about it, and particularly, I don't reach for the phone. Because if I reach for the phone first thing, then I'm going to become a prisoner of uh, the, the, the connectivity of the modern world rather than a guy who's dropping down and doing these mobility drills that's gonna help my workouts. And then of course, after I finish those, I go downstairs and I jump in the cold freezer. Uh, I'm now up to around six minutes routinely and the water's 34 to 38 degrees year round, rain or shine, no matter what. It's, I'm like a robot. So I wake up. I drop to the floor, I do my thing, and then the robot goes down the stairs. As Tony Robbins says, it's my mind telling my body what to do. He's a big cold plunge enthusiast. He's got a cold plunge at each of his seven luxury estates around the world. And there's a hormonal benefit. We probably talked about that on some of your shows. You can read about it. But the hormonal benefit aside, it's the fact that I can tell you guys in public and the listener. I do stand my, myself by doing this routine morning ritual every day, and then I can go become a victim of the email inbox and whatever else is going to punch me in the face of seventy-seven times the rest of the day.
2: Yeah, I mean that. I mean, and I, I've done the ice baths and the cold. I usually take a cold shower in the morning. I don't have I don't have a freezer. You know, the problem with me is you know fitting in these damn things is not as easy. <laughs>
1: oh yeah you got to get 20 20 cubic yeah, foot instead
2: I of 15. Got, i'm a fan of that stuff i know there's a lot of people that that you know dismiss that but i do think uh there is a benefit from that um i gotta ask you about uh the uh you know the you know the, the routine every day i mean i think that's 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 a great way to to, to kind of start your day with that stuff but let's talk a little bit about um you know, it's interesting because the diet, you know, obviously I'm, I'm obviously a pro- proponent of this carnivorous diet. And so you've, I guess, dabbled in it a little bit yourself now. Is that what I'm understanding or is that, and I just kind of, under, what I'd like to see what maybe your experience has been so far if, if you've done so.
1: Um, yeah. I've uh, cursed your name a few times over the past few months. Uh, same with Dr. Paul Saladino, my buddy, who's a great guy and spreading a great word Um but what happened was, you know, this stuff got implanted into my head. I think it was around April when I first started paying attention and listening to uh, you guys do great work, uh, mostly on podcasts and a little bit at, you know, the paleo event and stuff. Um, but, you know, I, I, was, I was paying attention to how you had a, um, a, a, a measured voice and a thoughtful answer to any type of uh, criticism or, or, you know, a counterattack and not, not an inflammatory one, but just a measured one. And so, you know, I'm, I'm priding myself on being an open-minded, critical thinking person. And so when I finish this recording and, and Sean Baker says, you know, if our ancestors had taken down a woolly mammoth and had 3 million calories to eat over the next several months, they wouldn't have gone picking any plants. And I'm like, well, that's pretty, uh, you know, it could be seen as a bombastic statement while you're like, well, shit, maybe this stuff was survival foods. And of course we're omnivores and that's proven and this and that, but it's like, uh, we did that to survive. And so now you have to jump into a different paradigm and say, right now we can eat whatever we want every day. We can go find anything in a good town, uh, and, and pick and choose what's the best, healthiest, most nutritious diet. And so I just kind of try to take these leaps myself. And of course, then you have to go live it and experiment with it. But it's been a great uh, thought experiment to be open-minded. But it does uh, create a little bit of like stress and confusion and anxiety because I'm sitting here, you know, I'm I'm cooking the meals for my family when we gather and have a big gathering and I'm stirring up my kale and my, my chopping my broccoli in there and going, what the F am I doing? What am I doing to my family, man? I'm feeding them you know, mild level of plant toxins and antigens, and some of them could have leaky gut syndrome and I could be poisoning them. Oh my goodness. So you know, uh, every day it was like I felt something different when I'd sit down to eat my salad or my vegetables in the early times. This is like March and April when I first started thinking about this stuff. And I'd take a bite and I, I have to say like, you, you guys mess with, mess with my head so bad that the stuff tasted differently. And so I'm chewing my broccoli and it's tasting like rubber. And I'm like, why is this tasting like rubber? I put a ton of butter on it. I put the spices on it. And it was because, you know, my, my mindset had changed. And now I'm thinking in the back of my mind, what if this stuff is not only not good for me, but possibly harmful to me? So uh, I'm still tripped out right now today. And my experiment has gone great. I, I feel, you know, uh, fine. And I'm not going to say incredible. I'm, I'm breaking records. It's just... I feel great, especially my digestion and Im- elimination is perfect, rather than those occasional episodes of bloating you get after drinking a big green smoothie or, you know, taking big doses of whatever that didn't agree with you perfectly that day. So, I have to give a thumbs up on many levels, especially the satiety and the nutrient density where, you know, now it's like one to two meals a day is kind of the pattern. And this other idea of like frequent snacking and the things that even people in primal paleo scene are stuffing down a lot of these keto bars or paleo snacks, um, you're so satiated that um, this actually coincided with me uh, turning into fatty popcorn, by that's what I called myself on Instagram and the podcast. I, I stepped on the scale one day, and I, had, I, I weigh myself maybe once or twice a year at a medical exam. I, mean, I just I don't care. I never did, and I stepped on the scale. I'm like, holy f! I'm 172 pounds. That's like six pounds, eight pounds more than my driver's license, and I didn't realize it. And then I like took a look in the mirror. I'm like, yeah, man, I'm I'm kind of looking different than um, than I'm used to seeing this person. So I kind of decided. Um, to get some structure going in my life and kind of regulate my my dietary habits My regulation is I eat only healthy foods But I was eating plenty of this and that, and an occasional popcorn binge turned into a frequent popcorn binge And I like to eat dark chocolate. So it'd be like instead of a few squares It was like a few bars <laughs> and then uh, I decided to like put the brakes on everything And so the carnivore eating pattern uh, to say nothing else you will lose excess body fat on this plan Because your eating choices are limited. And I think there's a lot of value and benefit to limiting your choices and your freedom in daily life when we have people spouting, hey, everything in moderation, might as well enjoy life. You only live once. And all that stuff can sometimes turn into bullshit and rationalizations rather than living the best life you can. So, on that note, it's a positive too, where I just kind of got more focus. Um, made better choices and more intentional choices because there was not that uh, not that many opportunities, not that many diversions.
0: This episode of HPO is brought to you by BioOptimizers. They have identified over 130 research studies showing this to be a powerful way to upgrade your keto digestion, energy and fat loss goals. Some keto pitfalls include constipation, lack of energy for peak exercise, and fat loss plateaus. Biooptimizers offers a possible solution called K-APEX. What K-APEX does is three things. First, it breaks down the fats you eat into fatty acids using a proprietary lipase and dandelion extract blend. This means you're breaking down the dietary fat into usable energy. Second, they transport those fatty acids into the muscles and in the liver and they have several ingredients that dramatically increase the fatty acid oxidation inside your mitochondria both in your muscle and liver. Simply put, you're transporting fuel into your motor and you're increasing your motor's horsepower. They recommend 3-5 to capsules of Kapex in the morning on an empty stomach for energy similar to a cup of coffee that can last 6-10 to hours without the nervous system stimulation. Smooth bowel movements and fat loss when coupled with a calorie deficit can be expected. It's not magic, but some research behind shows that it does help raise metabolic rate and other fat loss hormones. Try it for yourself when you go to www.kenergize.com forward slash human. That's K-E-N-E-R-G-I-Z-E dot com forward slash human. All one word you'll automatically get 20% off any package of KAPEX with coupon code HUMANKX, all one word. Now, back to the show.
2: Well, you think about, I mean, humans didn't have a lot of choice for most of our existence. I mean, it's not like we had a Whole Foods with, you know, 75,000 different food categories. I mean, you would have been limited to I mean, certainly, you know, any animals you could kill, and then maybe, you know, maybe what you could scrounge up, but I mean, there's just not that much food out there, particularly in any particular region. I mean, it's not like you can go and get some beans here, some rice here, some blueberries here, some bananas here, some kale here, some broccoli here. I mean, a lot of those things obviously didn't even didn't even exist. I mean, kale and broccoli didn't even exist, you know, way back then. And so, I mean, it's kind of like, okay, this what is a na- natural human diet? And I think it is a maybe not a strictly carnivorous one, but I think it's a meat-based diet for sure. And I think that should be the foundation of your diet rather than the sort of uh, sort of push toward we're trying to make meat a condiment. You know, that's like making food a condiment. You know, here's your food and then here's a bunch of indigestible fiber stuff that you can stuff in there to kind of pretend you're full, but it's not really going to give you nutrition. So I think that's a big paradigm shift and, and hopefully more people will understand it. And, you know, I think the biggest thing, the biggest critics are people that have never done it. And I think that's the uh, that's the uh the, the bottom line there. And, and and I was, you know, honestly, I mean five years ago you'd ask me about this, I would be like, that sounds crazy. And I'm I'm generally a pretty conservative, uh, skeptical uh person. And you know, it's it's just you know, it is what it is. It tends to work. But that's interesting. You know, I wanna go back to the thing about being unplugged. You know, I was at I was at a little um in the neighborhood we had a little concert down the street in one of the parks and there I was in there chatting with this guy that, Somebody want to meet. He's a guy who, I mean, he's probably, I'd say, late 50s. He says he has never in his life been on the internet, never used a cell phone. So, I mean, this is his, he made this conscious decision that he is completely unplugged. And he, and he says, it pisses his friends off because he has a dial up phone. And they're like, well, what if I need to get hold of you? Or wouldn't well, we want to do something? I said, well, plan ahead and call me the day before. And I think it's just, uh you know, it's kind of refreshing to see if there's still some people out there. Whereas, you know, and it's it, unfortunately. I mean, we're here using a device. I've got a phone. My kids, my kids, you know, will get on an iPad. My little, my young, my youngest, sorry, my oldest daughter has a phone now, and it's it is distressing to see them being sucked into this. And you know, I, I don't know that there's any any way to turn that around for the for society as a whole. I mean, it's almost like it's almost like the instead of the processed food, it's like processed information. You know, we don't we don't value it because it doesn't take anything to get it anymore. I mean, before when you had to when you had to obtain information you had to work to get that information i think and so maybe it has a more lasting print now i can just click on something and pull up whatever i want and it's like the same thing with the food supply it's like you can get whatever you want and I, I just wonder if there is some utility in humans actually being required some effort into 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 game you know whatever that be whether it's knowledge whether it's you know food satiety whether it's fitness whether it's sex whatever i mean there should be some sort of work to reward effort, you know, a a balance or ratio there. And I think that's just a, just an interesting topic that is kind of maybe made up off the top of my head, but
0: I I think we need to start a movement called intermittent iPhone, where it's like a 16, eight iPhone usage window or something like that.
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh. I mean, at the end there, you bring up that great point. I had um, Dr. Wendy Walsh on my show, the get over yourself podcast where I'm trying to broaden out from uh, not just diet and, and training, but happiness, peak performance, relationships, longevity. Uh, and she's, uh, if you don't heard, haven't heard of her, she's uh, America's relationship expert. She's been on TV all the time giving relationship advice. She was one of the Time Magazine co-persons of the year for her role in the Me Too movement because she called out Bill O'Reilly, was the first person to have him his whole empire topple. Uh, and she was talking about modern relationships and how... Um, We have hacked the dopamine pathway, and today there's uh, record numbers of males who are uh, addicted to porn and video games, especially in the younger age groups, and so what this does is it gives them such a tremendous payoff that real life can't hold a candle to taking out to a candlelight dinner and trying to woo an actual human female. Um, You get a better chemical payoff from being home, gaming your ass off, and then going over to the porn side and... um, you know, she, she expressed this as a huge concern for society. And there's so many other levels to that where we're getting this instant gratification from engaging with social media and getting the, the feedback and the likes and the followers and coming from, again, half my life with there was, it was a complete nothing here and now total immersion into this and surrounded by it. Um, that's nice for the guy in the park who's, who's unplugged. And for the rest of us, like, we have to exert that discipline and those strategic approaches where Dr. Kelly Starrett, I was talking to him on my show and, you know, he's the leading mobility, flexibility, injury prevention, rehab expert and legend in the CrossFit scene. And he, we spent more time talking about things like plugging your phone in in the hallway, walking your kid to school. These are his highest priority items on his list. To live a healthy, happy, balanced life. And then, of course, we'll talk about the training and the stretching and all that. But that was the top thing on his mind and his biggest concern for the health and fitness of the planet. And doing something simple, you know, I I want to, um, you know, reduce my level of arrogance whenever possible and to think that I'm the one guy who can plug my phone in by my bedside because I won't reach for it or things like that, where you give an inch and you take a mile. Same with like, making a bowl of popcorn because, hey, I'm in town visiting my family and celebrating. And then, boy, that was really good. And then when I get home, I'm going to make it again. And then there's going to be no more rules and guidelines and restrictions. And you're just a floater. You're like a consumer of the earth and you have no uh, focus and discipline. It's easy to get out of balance in that direction. Same with uh, you know engaging with real humans rather than just uh, triggering these social relationships that give you a dopamine payoff. So we just have to grow and learn to leverage and I think we're gonna be okay. I have great hope for the future, but I think right now we're on this crash course to, uh, you know, blowing up. If I could short Facebook stock right now, five years from now, I don't think this thing's gonna survive because it's too stressful for humans to continue to blow this thing up like it's been. Sorry, Facebook stockholders, but your stock's going down, so. Interesting. I, I, you know,
2: and I, I don't think, it ha- you know, some people will consider like, you know, restricting yourself from self, some stuff like asceticism, you know, and it's like you, you don't have to be this monk who, you know, self-flagellates themselves and you can't get any enjoyment in life. There is, I mean, there is tremendous enjoyment in doing some of this work. I mean, I mean, you talk about people that get out and garden or they get out and, you know, go on a hike or, I mean, you know, I mean, I, you know, like I said, even with the food, with the diet, I mean, my diet is, for most people to say so restrictive and boring, but I, I thoroughly enjoy every single meal. I mean, it's not like I've, I've ever sat down and said, oh my God, I get another awful ribeye steak again, or a plate of shrimp or something like that. It's just, it's, it just doesn't happen. And so, I mean, there's, you know, you, you still, you still get this tremendous amount of satisfaction, fulfillment, you know, from this stuff. And it's not just, you know, abstaining from the quick sugary highs and whether that's actual food or like I said, this, this bombardment of electronic simulation or whatever it may be. Oh, that's that's the thing I want to bring up. I, I saw a thing about, and we talked about pornography, um, that the amount of energy, because I guess something like 60% of the internet is consumed with pornography or something like that. That's like 60% of the internet is devoted to looking at pornography, takes up, and creates as much greenhouse gases as like the entire country of France. So when we're talking about saving the environment, you know, uh, and, and we're, we're not going to eat meat because because the cows are, you know, belching or farting or whatever they want to blame it on. I mean, it's like, this is, th- these are other things, you know, the healthcare industry is about 10% of the US, U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. And so when we have people that, you know, healthy people don't, are less likely to pollute and less likely to ruin the environment than unhealthy people with unhealthy habits and all this sort of stuff. So I think there's a lot of ways to tackle this, this problem or perceived problem about what we do about saving the planet from our own stupidity and our own environmental destruction. I don't think creating a, people, a nation or a culture of sick, unhealthy, you know, porn, internet addicted, you know, crazy people is, is, is a way forward either.
1: Love it, Sean. You're Going off, we're having a, a wide-ranging show. I love it.
0: <laughs> you know, Sean, one thing you said that I've been thinking about was just like, the. Uh, I, I'm sure you've heard this a million times when you've been talking about the carnivore diet and just being told, like, oh, I couldn't do that because, you know, I like this, or it's too one-dimensional, it's too, too much of the same thing. And I was just thinking, like, when – I was trying to think of when – in like my life or in anyone's life did it start to become like such a big focus that I want to be able to eat this specific thing or these specific things. And that's kind of like the highlight or the goal versus like, I think about when I was a kid, when you're just like, especially like in the summer when you had all day, just run around and play and do whatever you wanted basically. And I remember seeing like food and eating as something that was getting in the way of what I wanted to do, not something that like I was looking forward to getting to. And it seems like now as like a lot of adults, it's like they're always looking to like, well, oh, what's the next meal going to be? And then they're just waiting, counting down the hours and minutes to that next meal. Whereas as the kid, it was like, oh, man, I got to go home and get lunch or I'm not going to have any energy this afternoon. But you're really looking forward to getting past that point and back out to doing whatever it was you were doing or wanting to do.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, if you see food as nutrition to fuel your activity, your life experiences, and not consider it the experience, because so many people, I mean, really, literally, the only joy – the only passion they have in life is their next meal i mean and that is such a sad situation to be in and you're exactly right i mean my kids are in summer camp right now they're running their butt off when they get home they're going to jump in the pool and then we're going to do some gladiator training i'll make them carry stuff around the pit in my backyard for fun and then they'll eat and you know and it's it's like and you're right they don't want to eat they don't want to take time they don't want to stop playing to eat but you got to say hey guys get some fuel in your fuel tank and they don't really care you know at that point as a kid you're just like okay whatever's in front of me i eat real quick get it done. And then I'm out the door back, back to life. And, and you know, right now it's like everything, social occasions, family, occasion, it's all uh, it's, it, you know, people look forward to their food. They're like looking forward to the event because they can eat some cake or something like that. And that I think is, and I know a lot of people say, well, that's part of culture in life, but I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be, I mean, you can still interact with people in many ways and it doesn't have to be over uh, you know, over you know grandma's pecan brownies or whatever like that. I mean, there's, there's lots of ways to be, to be engaged in the world and experience stuff. And, you know, people talk to me about, well, don't you get tired of just eating meat all the time? And I'm like, well, I mean, I don't really get tired of breathing the same air every day. I mean, I don't demand that I have multicolored air or multi-flavored air. And I, I don't care that my urine is always yellow or almost yellow. It doesn't have to be rainbow colored. I mean, there's, there's basic physiological functions that, that I think we do. And I don't, there's no animal out there that's demanding a menu. I mean, my dogs don't sit there and say, hey, what's on the menu today? And they just eat, and I think that's as simple as it has to be. Uh, we just, like I said, we've just, we've just changed our environment so much where we can do whatever we want as human beings. And I think sometimes it's, well, certainly it's, it's not necessarily benefited us. I mean, there's a lot of things that technology has improved our life and quality of living and life expectancy and comfort level. But at the same time, uh, it's a two-edged sword for sure. Yeah, I
1: think when it comes to eating. Uh, we have to separate these ingrained habits and subconscious triggers from the actual enjoyment, preparation of food that's going to make you feel good uh, when you eat it and in the aftermath. And I think they're, we're, we're unconscious about most of the eating habits, and that's where the problem comes in. Because I get into discussion with people, and they're saying how they can't live without their bread, and they really love it. And um, some of that stuff could be countered because it's just habitual. And so it's not really that you love it, it's just you love the memory of uh, whatever. Or when you grew up with seven kids and you guys had to uh, compete for food, uh, you learned to eat really quickly and just chomp the stuff down and carry these habits for the rest of your life because they're programmed subconscious behaviors. Uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton, biology of belief, he states that 95 to 99% of our behavior is uh, emanating from subconscious programming that happened in childhood from ages zero to six. And it's a pretty trippy concept to think about, but this has been validated by scientific discovery of what's going on in the brain and the mind. And um, so you know, those times that we can wake up and become conscious just like getting defensive when someone uh, makes a criticism of your diet or whatever, or your, your behavior, and you just launch into this pattern behavior that you're so used to doing, and you get into toxic relationship dynamics, and you get into unhealthy, uh, unconscious eating dynamics. And if we unwound some of that, and that's what I was trying to describe with my experience with the broccoli, is like, do I like broccoli because my mind has been programmed that it's good for me? And that's part of the reason or a huge part of the reason that I like the broccoli. I I don't know. I I don't know the answer. It's some of the chewy taste and textures and variation in your diet and eating a salad, you know, can be described as pleasurable and a nice balance to just cutting into uh, an egg every single day. And that's all you eat. You'd probably get sick of it. And there's some, you know, parts of the palate if you're a really sophisticated eater. But I think we've gone so far down the road of just indulgence and decadence and habitual program behavior that we don't even know what we like and what we don't like because we haven't taken the time. We eat too fast and in a too distracted manner with our phone sitting there to to really learn it. And that's why I think restaurants are still a great experience because they're taking you out of that that mindlessness at home and at least having to engage with uh, a waiter and a menu and all those things that make it pleasurable as an overall evening.
2: Yeah, I mean, I could see. You know, back in the day, I mean, you'd sit around a campfire. You know, you might have you might have hunted, and then you spend time, you know, preparing, preparing the food, eating the food, socializing, you know, that type of thing. I mean, that certainly would have would have certainly occurred. I mean, I, and, and this is a thing with the, with the the, the the sort of a carnivore style eating pattern. I I try to tell people don't don't say that it's like you could never for the rest of your life have you know something else, something you like i mean i tell people if i'm going to cheat on the diet i'm going to have a piece of chocolate cake i mean i i for me i mean broccoli never appealed to me particularly i don't see how people eat that stuff raw i mean i mean it's like i don't know, I don't know if you guys have ever eaten I mean, like a raw piece of broccoli is like the worst i mean that's literally like taking i mean it tastes like eating sawdust literally i mean it's, it's just awful and you know you have to smother it in so much butter or something to make it palatable and i just wonder you know it's like are we enjoying the stuff we smothered in or are we actually enjoying the, the food itself because in my view it was it, i didn't it didn't take me much convincing to say i don't need to eat this stuff because it just didn't taste very good but i guess there's some people out there that either do actually enjoy it or at least say they actually enjoy it but i but i do find that you know these things they come they become vehicle like salads when I was, you know, and, and you know, like I said, I'll go back to Mark again, when he was talking about his big ass salads. When I, was, when I was doing the low carb and the paleo and the keto stuff, I would eat these big giant leafy, you know, uh, kale and spinach salad and just lots of it, you know, and of course I put plenty of eggs and bacon and, you know, whatever, and dressing on there, olive oil and fruit in there, and but I didn't enjoy the leaves. I mean, I was, I was enjoying the stuff that went on top but the leaves were like my it was like doing penance you know it was like well i guess i got to eat this yeah. stuff and doing this other stuff and i'm not convinced we need to eat that stuff quite honestly but i i don't i remember
0: about. i remember when I, I used to do the same thing sean and i used to love to get to the bottom of the salad bowl because a lot of the like <laughs> all the good tasting stuff would just find its way down there and you get you get through the top and then you would get to the good stuff and that's when you start to really enjoy it and then that's kind of a light bulb moment for me too is well, what am, I, what am I enjoying from this, this food here? Is it the leaves or is it the stuff I'm putting with the leaves? And inevitably, it was it was the latter. So,
2: Well, it's like saying, you know, tough times make you appreciate the good ones. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, you eat the leaves because you're like, eh, but then you get something that, <laughs> that actually tastes good. And you're like, wow, I can really appreciate that. <laughs> well, I mean, like they say, you know, like I think there's I – I don't know if it's a French saying, but they basically say hunger is the best sauce. And, you know, it's like you said – if you're hungry your food's going to taste better and I think that's there's a lot of that and we talked a little about the snacking culture and I've I've mentioned this many many times but I mean literally when I was a kid I mean it was like mom I'm hungry it's three o'clock in the afternoon they go well guess what we're having dinner at six wait you you don't want to ruin your appetite and we've gone away from that so now it's reflexively hand the kid a granola bar and in a juice box I mean that is a disaster in my view and I think you know we we need to, you know, again, this is a nice thing about this sort of meat heavy eating pattern is it puts you naturally in almost an intermittent fasting type of situation where you eat one, two, maybe three meals a day at most for most people. And I think that, I do think that is, is a huge advantage for, for most healthy human beings. Maybe, maybe there's some disadvantages for particular athletic endeavors, but I mean, in general, I think not eating constantly is a huge advantage.
1: Well, also getting to a point where you can appreciate your meals on a deeper level, and that's when you get a little bit hungry, which is almost entirely nullified uh, in today's modern life where people are going right up to the point where they might start to get hungry and then boom, they slam a lunch. And then if they do feel something in the afternoon, a blood sugar drop, they're going to prop that thing up. And we've been told to do that by nutritionists and dietitians, and... Um, not only does it mess up our metabolism and and you know prevent the 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 fat burning from kicking in but i think psychologically uh it's really it's destructive to not have to work hard uh, to get food or appreciate it with for example you know striving for an extended fast every day and one of those rules i put into place when i uh, saw fatty popcorn boy in the mirror as I said, you know what, just for fun, I'm going to go back to uh, fasting until at least 12 noon because I kind of had ignored that for uh, a couple of years previous where before that I had done it strictly in, in testing out this keto thing when Mark and I were working on the Keto Reset Diet book. And so I, I put back in this rule and it was just an arbitrary rule. It might not have been great for my athletic performance and recovery. I don't know. But the benefit of it was just to say to myself, okay, now I have more discipline and structure in life relating to my diet because I'm not going to eat anything until 12. And what happened, again, maybe this is physical and, and digestive circadian rhythm, but I think uh, the psychological aspect is important. As I started to get hungry around 11.30 every day, and I'm working, I'm having a productive morning. I didn't have to distract myself with preparing a meal, which is another benefit, I think, of just not having to eat all the time. Is just, you jump up, you do your workout, you go at it, you're at the, at the laptop, in my case, and I'm going, going, going. And then around 11.30, I'd always notice, huh, oh, what time is it? Oh, it's 11.30. And I'd start thinking about my meal, and planning and preparing maybe what I was gonna make, and then get into the kitchen at noon and start to have a nice delicious feast. And I felt like that was also a pleasurable experience uh, as opposed to just walking into a well-stocked refrigerator at your break room or at home and seeing all the wonderful choices and all the things you can stuff in your face every single day without having to lift a finger besides click a button on the uh, Amazon home delivery. And so getting back to some level of Uh, appreciation for preparing the meal from scratch at home, shopping and and learning more at the store and talking to the butcher or the the produce manager, what have you, whatever whatever aisle you like to go in the store, but just kind of getting deeper into it. And in my case, I've gotten more appreciative of cooking and preparing meals in recent years because we've been, geez, maybe I should contribute a recipe uh, and that kind of thing. So um, I think the more, more deeply we get into the appreciation and the celebration of food is one of the great pleasures of life, I think most people are going to up their dietary quality tremendously because that crap that's going down the pipe just because it's there or because you think you like the Mr. Goodbar or the Cheetos, um, you can unwind that really easily and realize that these are just kind of an offense to the palate when it gets down to it. And then it's an offense to your digestive tract and your energy level and your metabolism. So I think for anybody who's you know, staunchly committed to whatever indulgent diet they have now, it's really easy to unwind that if you just decide to you know, take, a, take a leap of faith and maybe perhaps do an experiment where you do an exclusionary diet for 30 days. You don't have much to lose, and it could be an awakening of health that would really get you going on the, on the right path.
2: Yeah, no, I agree with uh with, with the experimental stuff. And I you know, this is the one frustration that I have is people talking about well, where is the long term conclusive evidence that shows that this or that diet is optimal for all human beings or any human beings. And, and there's there's none for any diet. I mean, realistically, I mean we you know, we can we can probably say that eating a Twinkie Dorito diet is probably not good for us. You know, I mean I think there's I mean, I think that's one of these just obvious uh you know evolutionary that, that that just didn't exist in, in humanity we know that and so we uh, we think about what what did healthy people or healthy animals have access to and then and then beyond that you just have to kind of you kind of have to figure it out because we just don't have we just as much as people try to use the science the science is just extremely weak around all this stuff i mean and it's mostly epidemiologic observational data that is all we can really afford to do and uh I, I tell people, you know, look, I mean, there's nothing wrong with experimenting and, you know, it's it's like, uh, uh, you know, you don't need a advanced degree or a white coat or letters behind your name to, uh, to to do your own science. I mean, it's not, science is not restricted to only people that have PhDs. I mean, anybody can use a scientific method and that is basically, uh, you know, make an observation, you know, theorize what's causing it and attest it. And I think this is what you can do with yourself. And I think diet is a is a very appropriate way to do that. I, mean, I think it makes such an important impact on health, function, well being, and so many other things. And, and that's what I just kind of encourage people to do. And I, I, I think we're seeing some of the fruits of that, you know. And, I, and again, I've been very uh, sort of vocal about letting people know what's what's going on. And you know, there's, there's certainly critics out there that it doesn't match their training. And it didn't match my training either, but I think this open, and yours too, Brad. I mean, you know, you think, you, you know, like I said, we grew up basically in the same time time frame and, you know, very similar experiences, I'm sure, in life as far as what we we're exposed to culturally. And, and so it's just a huge, huge shift in, you know, what we're willing to believe and think. And uh, some of the thinking is being done for us. And this is the other thing, you know, we don't, we, we've kind of, again, back to the cell phone, we've kind of peripherized our brain. I mean, we just kind of like, well, oh, I don't need to think anymore. I can just type it on my smartphone and get the answer. But I mean, there's there's some, you know, there's some uh, uh, utility and some critical thinking out there and, and you know, sort of not not just listening and parroting what you've been told and, and, and finding out for yourself. Looking in the mirror. I mean, I think the mirror is the best tool, not not in a vanity sense, but I mean, in, in, in more of a, uh, a figurative sense. You know, you can look into what's going on in your life and say, this is positive thing or this is not and you can you can tend to trust yourself and most people can do that they don't need someone to run a expensive test or study on them to to say whether they're they're getting better or worse i think that most people it's pretty intuitively obvious um what else uh brad did you want to talk about while well, we well we got for a few i think we got a few more minutes left um what else what other kind of topics do you think are are interesting
1: well, I'm, I'm curious uh if zach has seen uh you know, some evolution in the endurance scene because, uh, you know, what I've observed is this momentum is still there for overtraining patterns, high carb eating patterns. And now we have, you know, some performance outliers doing something different. They gotta be calling, attention. You know, people gotta be paying attention. But I just wonder what's, what's required for a cultural shift, uh, particularly with that community, which is so uh, distinct in terms of their, uh, motivation levels and, you know, high performance mindset.
0: Yeah. You know, I, th- I think I'm definitely seeing a, a shift in the sense that there's more people who are willing to try a high fat, low carb approach. And I think now that it's maybe a little less black and white, whereas when it kind of first came, it was kind of like, and it was based on, this is what we know. It's like, if you're going to do that approach, you go strict keto versus kind of maybe a little closer to something I do where, I, you know, cycle some carbohydrate back in during intense training. Um, even that though is kind of weird to define cause it's like, what are we defining as keto? Are we looking at a specific grams per day? Are we looking at a specific amount of millimoles of ketones in your blood? Because you know, there's, I could go on all day about that. and think kind of what I've seen in my own, my own blood ketone type stuff, even in the presence of what most people would consider would throw them way out of ketosis. Um, but that's kind of besides the point, but it, I, I think we have more athletes that are kind of more on the uh, the pointy end is in the extreme endurance world that are kind of getting behind it and at least trying it out. Uh, I think more people are looking at it as an option. They're seeing it as this is something in the extreme endurance world that deserves a seat at the table, at least maybe it's not going to be our kind of primary practice it's certainly not right now in terms of what most people are doing Um, but the population that I see I think getting more and more interested in are you know the folks that are at that point where they in society's eyes have ran their fastest race Uh, you know the folks who are there they want to have a good race they want to meet their max potential but like you were describing earlier Brad there there's four, five, six other things that come before that in life. And uh, those folks I think are really open-minded to it because they see the benefits of it spreading into those other things that are higher priorities in their life. And, you know, I consider myself, you know, an athlete first in a lot of cases, but uh, that was the catalyst that got me into it when I started almost eight years ago. Like, it wasn't that my performance was suffering at the time. It wasn't that my workouts weren't going well. It was because my energy levels during the rest of the day sucked.
1: And it was because
0: I couldn't sleep through the night anymore. And historically, I was a great sleeper. I'd sleep right through the night all the way through high school and most of college. And then it was after that where I was waking up three, four, five times a night to use the bathroom to just toss and turn and take forever to fall back asleep and all that weird stuff like that, that shouldn't be happening to a male in their mid twenties. And, um, I think just, you know, the more of that comes out and the more we can kind of point to things like why are there so many commercials that are, promoting you know low testosterone or like here's something for low testosterone here's things for like erectile dysfunction things that shouldn't be happening to males in their 30s 40s maybe ever probably ever really when we think about it um and if it's happening that often that you know companies are willing to invest millions of dollars in advertisements to get their product in your hands it's you know that i think people are starting to notice that to a degree um and I'm branching out maybe a little past like the endurance world, which is kind of what you were asking about, but, but um, I I think it's growing. I think it's growing maybe slower than a lot of the folks have been in it for the, for the long haul, like yourself would, would like, um, but it's not slowing down. So that's a, uh, that's a positive, I would say.
1: Keep moving forward. You know, another thing that was uh, really been on my mind, Sean, is this concept of uh, micro workouts or mini workouts. And I've been kind of, trending in this direction for several years, possibly due to laziness, of not wanting to go to the gym and hit it hard for an hour, and also noticing that, you know, because I'm, I'm more of an endurance background, I don't have that, that, that strength foundation, a lot of these workouts would wipe me out, you know, when I'd go to the gym and do the proper sequencing through the stations or do a few sets of squats and deadlifts and rope pulls, and I'd feel great while I was doing them, but I noticed, like, 24, 36 hours later, I'd feel like crashing and burning at my desk. And I attributed it to the overly stressful nature of the workout just because I wasn't adapted to hit it that hard. It was just my competitive intensity coming out. And so what I ended up doing, like kind of drifting into was I'd be at home on a day where I wasn't planning to go to the gym. I didn't have a workout scheduled, but I'd hit the pull-up bar, let's say for one set, and I'd do it two or three times a day to take a break from work. And then I got a a hex deadlifting bar in the backyard. And when I'd go out to take the garbage out from the kitchen, I'd go by the deadlift bar and I'd go, you know, here we go, one set and then back to work. And as these things started to sprinkle into my daily routine, I started to realize that they had tremendous value because over time, if I made even the most mild effort to forget about having your contraptions at home, if you're at work and you, you haul off a set of 20 deep squats, Ask to grass, like former Olympic runner Michael Stember taught me, so you go all the way down to the bottom, and if you can do twenty of those, you're going to start burning. I don't care who you are that's a tough little session. Probably take' you can do that several times a day and then sprinkle these things in, and then we'll take a block of time, like a month or or whatever period of time like you're talking about with your your push ups you did three hundred thousand or something. It didn't seem that daunting to to take one day and do 300. But over time, I think it's really added up for me to be a way to build my strength, uh, raise my platform from which I launch a formal workout when I do go to the gym and do a formal workout so it doesn't trash me so bad. So I've been able to make a breakthrough just by throwing in these little bouts of uh, miniature uh, performances of strength and explosive energy without that risk of... uh, uh, delayed recovery and breakdown from doing a workout pattern that's too stressful.
2: Yeah, I mean, when I was, I remember it was something twenty. I was, I was playing rugby in Denver years ago. I mean, it was in the ni- early nineteen nineties, and I ran into a guy named Mike Smith, who was one of Lauren Cordain's, uh PhD uh, post or, grad, or postdocs, I think, something like that. And he was doing the research playing on a rugby team. They were talking about micro workouts back then. You know, that was that in eating. You know, the the, the, the quote unquote paleo diet, which i was, like, I thought i was very intrigued this is you know 25 years ago and i was like well that's kind of interesting actually more than that it was almost 30 years ago now that i think about it um but uh yeah i mean i i do think that that you know that you know i walk upstairs go hop on a grass bang out a set of say, a set of push-ups and you know walk on my way and i think that that does have some utility there there's some studies out there showing people that do like a mild easy workout in the morning you know Uh, maybe some some moderate sprints you know short short duration have better workouts in the afternoon if if they're doing like two a days and stuff like that so I think there is some carryover to that stuff and I mean yeah I mean that's something that uh, anybody can do I mean it's you like I said bust out a set of air squats or push-ups or you know jumping jacks or you know if you got a chin-up bar chin-ups you know those things are all I think great tools and you know, get a little kettlebell, put it in your office, you know, get a little decent kettlebell, put it, you know, behind your chair or whatever, and pick it up and swing it, you know, a couple times a day. I think, I think there's so many ways you can, you can improve upon what the normal pattern of is, you know, slouch in your chair for six hours, go to the bathroom, you know, go to the break room and eat a donut. I mean, there, there's just, (laughs) even in in the modern world with, with all the sort of negative influences we have we can we can we can we can improve upon that with very little effort quite honestly
1: all right guys you're uh you're doing great stuff with the show i'm so honored to be on and talk about this and that we went in we went in directions and uh it was really fun but i think some of this stuff is uh could be life-changing just taking taking one or two insights out of the show and uh putting them into play it's great stuff
2: well, I, I have to tell you, I, I appreciate learning about the speed golf because I, I always said that if, if I ever do golf for exercise, then you might as well shoot me because so, you know, that's my idea of exercise. And I like to exercise. And, and so I looked at, you know, maybe what I'd be you – know, I, I see some of the long ball competition where you just go and whack the hell out of it as hard as you can. I probably got some of that sort of stuff. But I but the speed golf sounds kind of fun too. It's just uh I find I'd be, I'd be running through out of bounds quite a bit, you know.
1: Well, what's great great for anybody who's passionate about golf, you don't have to be super fit. But if you go out there, let's say you play your round, you're having a drink with the gang in the clubhouse, it's getting dark, go out there with a few clubs and try it for a few holes. And in many cases, you will have this amazing awakening where if you just get out of that analytical mindset, run up to the ball, look at the target, and hit it, you'll find yourself hitting these beautiful shots, especially on the putting green where you know, there's no mechanical calculation for how hard to hit a 25 foot putt, right? When, when you hit an eight iron and you swing full effort, you know, it's going to go 150 yards, whatever you're a golfer, you got your programming, but when you're hitting a putt, it's hundred percent of a feel uh, exercise in sports. And you can't take it back 24 inches and go through 18 inches. You just have to sense where the, where the ball's going to go. And when you're playing speed golf, the long distance putting is so much better for me because I don't waste any, I don't interfere with the nervous system process of just getting up and stroking the ball. And it's like an awakening to see this ball end up three inches from the hole when I'm 30 feet away where I can't putt that well when I'm doing my plumb bobbing and and listening to my playing partner. This, this hole's really, it's really uh, downhill. I, I play here a lot. I've noticed, you know, like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just messing with my head now. So Anyone can try it and, and dabble in this exciting new adventure, and then hopefully, hopefully get hooked and uh, come out and join us at some of these tournaments.
2: Hey, hey, uh, bro! What's your best round, by the way? I mean, what's your best round on the speed golf?
1: So my my best speed golf score is a one twenty five, and that is uh, a seventy eight in forty seven minutes plus forty seven. And this was on championship course uh, called Spring Creek in uh, Central Valley, California. I got third place in the California State Pro Championship. So I'm, I'm battling those pro guys, but uh, the top players in our sport will shoot even par and play a golf course in 45, 50, 55 minutes. It's, it's stunning what they can do. And my boy Christopher Smith in Eugene, Oregon, if you look on YouTube and you want to learn about this sport, type in Christopher Smith speed golf band and dunes, and you will see what I think is maybe the greatest round of golf ever played by any human. I know Tiger shooting that 61 and these guys on the pro tour just knocking the flag down, but he played the great Bandon and dudes, one of the greatest courses in the world, the number one rated resort in the world, any golfers heard of it. Um, he shot four under par 68, running the course with six clubs in 53 minutes. And they have a high-speed video with a drone where they're showing every shot he hit. And it's only three minutes to watch the video. But you're watching this guy knock in pars and birdies and pars and birdies while he's running. And so if you think of golf as this stupid sport that takes forever, watch one video on YouTube. You will be pumped up to go try it yourself.
2: How long do you, you? I mean, you. I assume you run up to the ball, and then how long do you like take to to kind of address the ball? And you know, I mean, is it just run, pull, plug about your, but you know, you, you kind of know how much you're going to club you're going to need, and then you yeah, well, run through there. I, and mean, it.
1: I I only have five clubs, right? So that's the other part of speed golf is it's very creative because you don't have your full arsenal. And by the way, listeners, if you're a golfer, and if you're a golfer and you're not shooting in the seventies. You don't need that big-ass bag full of clubs because you're not good enough. No offense. All you need is six or seven or eight clubs because they don't go as far as they're supposed to go anyway most of the time. So that part's really fun because then I'll get to the ball and I'll, I'll have to choke up all the way on an eight iron and hit it you know, 30 yards shorter than it's destined to go. And so then you get even more sort of natural athletic ability coming out, hitting these half shots, and just trying to do your best and have fun and not get so worked up about shooting an exactly perfect score. So there, you know, those kind of things make it more fluid and creative, but yeah, you're just kind of going up. A lot of people are wondering like, do you go up and uh, watch your heart rate lower, uh, you know, lower your heart rate? I'm like, oh my gosh, there's no time for any of that nonsense. And the heart rate's pounding through your chest for most of the round. Uh, but again, this is 18 holes. So you know, Zach, most courses are like a 5.5 mile on GPS. So you're running kind of a tempo pace For five and a half miles like you're doing a 10 K or, you know, a little bit sub threshold pace for for uh, more or less a 10 K, but in the in the world record where I'm playing one whole 500 yards. um, That was a full sprint. So I was like out of the blocks, Wade Van Niekerk Brazil Rio world record 43 seconds. I'm a little slower than that, but um, that is holding nothing back. And then I had to train over many months time to go for this record. And I, I I studied the video of the record holder and I realized there was some optimization to achieve. And one of them was like to train my, my brain to get up to the ball and swing and hit it while I was heaving and out of breath rather than take two or three or four seconds to just, (gasps) I just went up there, I grabbed the club and I whacked the thing, but it took repetition over and over in practice to get comfortable with it because you're you reflexively don't want to grab a club with your hands shaking and your chest heaving but you can do it if you just practice and get comfortable with it so i chopped off a few seconds here and there i chopped off a lot of seconds by not carrying any other clubs because the other athletes were choosing a club and switching it out of a bag and then running up to the next ball so i just had this one club i never dropped it on the ground and it was it was dead sprint so it was quite different than tournament speed golf but it was a fun folly and uh, just just great stuff and i you know i'm 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 okay calling attention to myself and yapping about it because i think if you can listen and connect at some level to going out and doing something fun and challenging rather than sitting on the sideline and when i was coaching my kids starting at how old was i from 38 to 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 48, whatever those magical years were when I was coaching the the guys, most of the dads would come with their folding chair and sit on the sideline and take that opportunity to read the newspaper. And it's like, that's cool, dude, because I know you had a hard work day and a hard commute, but I would purposely get up and go, hey, you, you and you put on these orange shirts. I need more guides for the scrimmage. And I'd get these dads out on the course, out on the soccer field, and get them playing and running around with the kids. And you know what happened when I did that? Can you guess what happened on the weekend? Oh, yeah. Much yes, less yelling from the sideline at your poor little kid when he missed the ball or made a mistake. Because it's like, they'd be out there and they'd get winded after about three minutes and 12 seconds. You could see the game change when their wind was gone. And then they'd go and swing at a ball and miss, right? I mean, they'd be like, man, I had no idea how difficult this sport was until I got in there and scrimmaged with these 12-year-olds. So It was, it's, it's really fun to just go for it in life and participate and never think you're too old or, or out of shape for anything.
2: Yeah. I mean, I've got, we're right now a little dodgeball at the house with the kids. Uh, I line up at night, we play dodgeball and you know, I, I, I try to take those kids out.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I learned that from my, my boy, DMC, and his boys, Tyler and, and Connor. Zach, you might know Tyler currently He just crossed the finish yeah. line of the Western States, 22 hours, first time, following <laughs> in the footsteps of his dad, who finished in 96, and he was on the cover of the Auburn Journal, little Tyler, who was, what, uh, eight years old, high five in his dad, and now he finished. What an amazing occasion. But that dude would go one-on-one with his little boys when they were like fourth fifth and sixth grade and he would slam into them and body up and score another basket and these kids would be near tears and saying this wasn't fair that wasn't fair but guess what they became exceptional athletes in their older years because dad did not hold back one inch when they were little dudes
2: yeah my kids get the same treatment and they, they, they cry until i saw them no crying but <laughs> So were were
1: in like, in dodgeball. Not not in dodgeball. They banned dodgeball in California elementary school. Yeah. You know, crazy man, it's gone. It's gone. I just I just you know, remember
0: in in middle school when we would play dodgeball. You know, I went to school in Wisconsin and we'd play in the middle of winter. Sometimes you take one of those rubber playground balls to the face oh. in zero degrees. <laughs> oh Feel God. that oh. one oh. recess still. <laughs>
1: You should have sent videos to the California public <laughs> educators that banned dodgeball. Look at these little rats getting their tattoos at, at age eight.
0: Yeah. <laughs> they did a workaround in Wisconsin. I'm not sure what's changed since I was teaching there, but now they, they can play dodgeball, but they've got to use these, like, foam balls. Play that
2: Nerf balls. Oh yeah, God. basically,
0: a, it's, like, a, even softer than a Nerf ball. It's, like, not as compressed as that even yet. But, yeah, so –
2: Oh, they, I didn't realize they dodged, the band dodge. Well, I'm not surprised. I mean, it's
0: the
1: age of the helicopter parent and the overly structured, overly manipulated lifestyle for the young kids. And I, I'm going to blame technology a little bit, but also like my reflection as a parent now, my kids are 21 and 19. So they're kind of out of those years where you were trying to do the puppet strings on everything. And I realize now, like, we have much less influence than we think we do or like to believe that we do, because a parent, your ego 's involved, you want your kid to uh, you know be be uh, making the A team of course, when it comes time for selection or getting the valedictorian award, and you know we 're seemingly uh, raising uh 1338 valedictorians at uh, you know uh, when they're going to high school like we think every our kid has the potential to be a division one athlete was the tremendous obsession in hugh sports was like yeah you know if you keep doing that well maybe you could go d1 like are you freaking kidding me you know what the stats are and the valedictorians we know what the stats are when we go to graduation there's well now they split it now there's like eight at certain schools if they all got straight a's and run the table in my day there was one and so I think that stuff is so overrated. So if there's any parents listening, A, you have much less influence than you think you do. So relax, open doors, be a caddy for the kid, don't hit their shots for them, to use a golf analogy. And B, uh, the success path is tremendously overrated. And it's ruining kids' lives when you're trying to, you know, orchestrate something that's not naturally destined and meant to be. Uh, You know, my sister was, valedictorian of her college at Yale. There's four different colleges. So she was a high performing student and it was a, her complete natural destiny. Her parents, my parents never bugged her about her homework, nor did her older brothers. We did not offer any advice or studying tips. She was destined for that path and she became a physician and she loves it and she's you know high performing in many ways. But if you tried to replicate her journey, such as my other brother and I, we had no fricking chance. And we realized in 10th grade. And so when my father's sitting me down and saying, Hey, I'd like you to consider the Ivy league schools because those are the best education. And that's where I went. I'm like, dad, I'm pulling a two eight in a crappy public high school in Los Angeles. And I like running and and drawing (laughs) stuff and uh, making fake sports stories and writing a fake sports newspaper. That was my passion back then. Right. And so um, I think, Watch those kids, let them, let them flow into whatever passions they have. And again, open those doors, encourage them, don't criticize them. I learned this one too, like you know, a, a kid after my, my son played very high level high school basketball, they went to the state tournament twice. He plays at UCLA now with the, the women's team. He's a scout team player and he's loved it his whole life. Uh, and he plays hard and tries hard. And after a game, when they're processing it with a young brain, whether they win or lose, it's not a great time to give your helpful observations from the stands about how things could have gone better. And I remember being re- resolute to stick to this mission of not opening my f and mouth after the game, even when I was super frustrated or whatever was going on in my mind as an intense fan. And I remember this one trip, we were at a tournament and we drove for 90 minutes in silence from, from uh, Reading, California to Chico, California. <laughs> And my son didn't say one thing. And after 23 minutes or whatever, it says, I am not breaking this streak, man. I am not going to be the guy to crack. So I'm just driving along, driving along. And we pulled into Chipotle and he just let it flow. And so the, the other 90 minutes of the drive, we had a three hour drive. All he did was talk and process things. And I was able to be a helpful father. But if I had so much as said one thing in that first 90 minutes, the whole thing could have blown up. So there's my, my parenting story uh, for, for all you guys in that, in that mix right now. And uh doing the best you can oh my gosh it's 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 a great awakening to to sit back and realize that they're their own people with uh, their own you know their own natural destiny and determination
2: well that's a good note to end on thank you so much brad let folks know where they can get a hold of you find you check out your speed speed golf
1: video that type <laughs> of stuff uh, oh boy I, I appreciate people going over to bradkearns.com uh, K-E-A-R-N-S is my last name. I have this wonderful podcast called Get Over Yourself where I'm allowing my personality to come out and have fun and, and get in the mix. It was like, you know, our show today where we just let it fly a little bit and not have so much structure and repetition of the same stories and talking points of book authors or whatever. So I try to just get on there and, and uh, you know, give some uh, good advice with the uh, the humor and the spice that I'm, I'm trying to be known for. So hopefully you'll like that. If you like things off the beaten path and free thinking the get over yourself podcast, but you can find everything at BradKerns.com.
0: Awesome, Brad, we will put those links in the show notes. So listeners, you can click over and check out what Brad's up to. Uh, best of luck. And thanks for coming on the show.
1: Oh, you guys are doing a great show. I know it's a new show, so I hope people will find this thing. I'll be happy to spread the word because um, fun stuff. Keep up the good work guys.
0: Thank you very much, Brad. Hey folks, human performance outliers podcasts is growing And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to HPOPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media, and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.